This is Seattle's Morning News. Let's talk about cancel culture, which, according to a book entitled The Canceling of the American Mind, is out of hand, especially on college campuses. It's co-authored by Ricky Schlott, along with Greg Lukianoff. And Ricky, first of all, uh, tell us your politics. Uh, I understand you uh, you identify as libertarian. Yes, I would say I'm probably a center-right libertarian, and Greg is a, an old-school Democrat, and mm-hmm. I think that our, our complementary viewpoints probably uh, make this book a little less partisan than <laughs> some people might expect. Well, I mean, and you point out, it's a very fair book, you point out that the cancel culture is uh, both left and right, but tell me about your own, you know, what got you interested in this. You dropped out of NYU. Why? Yes. Um, I dropped out of NYU during the pandemic for a multitude of reasons. The the most immediate was that they tried to charge full tuition for Zoom school, which seemed completely inappropriate to me. Um, but also I found the, the uh, environment on campus to be pretty stifling. I mean, st- statistically speaking, FIRE, the organization that my co-author is the head of, um, does surveys of students about self-censorship on campus and consistently more than half of a solid plurality, if not majority of students, report self-censoring. I found that to be the case in NYU. I felt it to be um, an environment in which saying or doing the wrong thing could really get you in the crosshairs mm-hmm. of, of cancel culture. Or so first, first of all, I want to explain that the uh, you're a fellow with uh, FIRE, as you mentioned, which is the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. And you, you fight this cancel culture uh, idea, which is if we disagree with you, we don't try to persuade you. We try to get you fired, basically. So yes. so when you talk about self-censoring what kind what kinds of ideas did you find yourself having to self-censor well, I'll tell you, uh, um, my freshman year, I moved in, and this is very embarrassing to say in retrospect, but I moved in very concerned about like, making friends in a, in a new city, 18-year-old, all alone. And I hid books under my bed. I hid my Jordan Peterson books. I hid my Thomas Sowell books, like mm-hmm. pretty mainstream, right-leaning authors that are Truly, in in my view, I mean, 12 Rules for Life is not an offensive book in the least, but I felt as though in order to fit in socially, I had to conform. And I think that that is a really big problem in, in college campuses, broadly from a social level, but also an epistemic level, because how are we going to produce knowledge if people can't challenge prevailing viewpoints? Yeah. Now, cancel culture began, at least as far as I can tell, with the canceling of speeches by speakers who some vocal group of students didn't even want to didn't even want to hear. But now you're saying mm-hmm. it's 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 extended to the firings of professors. So what you and you collected statistics yes. on this, right? Yes, actually, um, the numbers, I think, in the historical sense are pretty shocking, even to me in the course of writing this book. But FIRE, um, the organization that Greg is, Greg is the leader of, uh, defends the free speech rates of, of students and professors on campus. And they've collected just in the past decade, 1,000 attempts of um, to get uh, professors either punished or fired for their speech, uh, 200 of which have been successful, successful, and several dozen of those were actually tenured professors, which would have been unthinkable just a couple decades ago. But I one point that I really want to hammer home that I think is just staggering is when we look back historically, we think of the Red Scare rightfully as a, a really frightening moment in American censorship. And at that point in time, histor- historians today say that probably around 100 professors were fired Today, it's 200 in the just since 2014. So that's twice the rate. So we should be taking this very seriously in terms of its scale. Yeah. Now, um, I understand you believe that part of the reason for this phenomenon on campuses is because of the number of 
first of all, the large number of female students, the number of male students now, and the large number of female administrators. The, the, it's, you call it the feminization of, uh, of uh, university education. Explain that, which, which I, was, I felt strange coming from a woman. Yeah, actually. So I, I recently did an interview with, with Jordan Peterson in which he asked me about that. That's not part of our book, um, but he was curious to get my my take on that um, as as a young woman who's more on the right. Um, that's I I'm more hesitant to call that out. I, I think I do actually think that the percent the fact that there are 60 percent females on university campuses right now uh, is a demonstration of the fact that young men are in crisis in a lot of ways that society is not necessarily engaging with. Um, but I would say there's there's a feminization of society, not necessarily in, in the root number of women, but I think what Dr. Peterson was getting at, which I agree to to an extent, is the idea that um, that that feelings guide actions. And I, I think one of the, the coddling of the American mind, my co-author Greg Lukianoff wrote his prior book. Um, one of the things that he, he believed was a great untruth that's pervasive in society is always trust your feelings. And I do believe that there has been an abdication of, of um, administrators in particular of being rational in the face of, of speech related scandals and a a conflation of speech with violence that I think is very concerning, but I would not go as far as Dr. Peterson, potentially, I don't want to speak for him, but I would not go as far as to say that that is um, intractably of, of an issue of, of women necessarily. Ricky Schlott is the co-author with Greg Lukianoff of The Canceling of the American Mind, and she is a fellow with FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. And uh, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian, Felix Bennell, joins us every Friday morning for All Over the Map. It's a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. This week, not too far from Victoria on the west coast of Vancouver Island, a nature photographer recently located one of the biggest and oldest cedar trees in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, this sounds great, Felix. Yeah, the photographer's name is uh, T.J. Watt. The Washington Post did a story about him in this amazing western red cedar a few weeks ago, which is where I first read about it. Now, TJ grew up on Vancouver Island. He works for uh, the Ancient Forest Alliance. That group's been pushing the B.C. government to protect what remains of the big trees in that province, since something like 90% of them have already been logged. Now, TJ's 39. He's been searching for and photographing big trees for two decades. He found this one on Flores Island on the lands of the Ahousit First Nation. So it's just north of Tofino on the west coast of Vancouver Island. The tree is absolutely enormous. It's over 17 feet wide at its base, more than 150 feet tall. Uh, It's in a remote location on the island out there. And I found it um, through, I guess, a little bit of luck, but maybe my years of big tree hunting has helped hone my my nose for where to find these things. And it is uh, more than 1,000 years old. So I like it. It just sort of erases any of the history stuff that I talk about on this segment or on Wednesdays. Kind of yeah. doesn't matter. I mean, this tree, this you're tree just about a thousand years old. Yeah, right? yeah. This tree, this tree doesn't care about those kinds of things. Um, now he found this giant red cedar back in June of last year, but didn't reveal it publicly until just a few months ago. He wanted to document it and work with the Ahaus at First Nation on a strategy for protecting it. Now, along with the luck, he said the hunt for this tree involved what he calls a fair amount of bushwhacking. We started to see some some larger cedars appearing, and then uh, all of a sudden that one appeared. And truthfully, in my twenty years of doing this. No tree has blown me away more than this one. It's perhaps the most 
impressive tree in all of Canada because not only is it over 17 feet wide at its base, but it actually gets wider as it grows taller. That's just unlike any tree I've ever seen before. Yeah, and he describes the shape of it as kind of an inverted triangle. It does get larger as it goes taller. Now, I put a copy of one of uh, TJ's photographs on my Facebook page. We'll have a gallery later at My Northwest. But now, I don't know if you've ever tried to take a picture of a tree yourself. I have. Um, I don't think TJ Watt has anything to worry about uh, in terms of competition for me. I did ask him for some photography tips on taking photographs of trees. He said the first thing to do is track down some of the biggest trees on Earth, you know, which you can find on Vancouver Island, other parts of B.C., or really even here in Washington. From there, I find using a wide-angle lens really helps, shooting on overcast days where the sun isn't so harsh, and then having a person in there for scale. Often you'll see me in my little red jacket beside a tree, and that really helps give a sense of just how gigantic these ancient trees can truly be. Yeah, and sure enough, I was looking at the, as I posted that picture on Facebook earlier this morning, there's a little there's a little T.J. Watt there standing down near the bottom. It that's really shows. Inc- I just yeah. looked it up, yeah. Isn't that and crazy? that's incredible, with him there for scale and just seeing all the shit, yeah. I, you see a big tree like that, and you can't help but think the tree can talk back to you, right? Do you ever feel that way when I'm in the midst of, like, whether it's the redwood forest or just something in our own forest? I always feel like, man, if only you could tell me your stories. I'm going to do a segment. I'm going to go talk to trees with Felix Bunnell on Cairo News Radio. Yeah. We'll do that after the traffic. A lot of dead air. What's in your medication there, Colin? <laughs> Let me, uh, <laughs> no, I, no, I like I that. Tru- I, I'm I, a tree hugger. I understand I, what you mean. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's a serenity you feel, especially a tree that's that big and that old. Now, he says the B.C. government's on the verge of adopting some new policies to protect trees like this. Um, First Nations, that's the indigenous people in Canada, are also working to protect trees there as well. He said the remnants of the ancient forest stretch from California to Alaska, and the U.S. is actually further along than B.C. in protecting them. Now, there's a few trees like this in Washington. Probably the most famous is the Duncan Cedar. That's south of Forks. It's about 178 feet tall, around the same age. But, yeah, I mean, this, these, this, this kind of history, this is this deep, this deep, deep history, this is where you get the real insight from just spending time with trees Fe- like that. Felix, I, I know that you might have mentioned this, but do you know, obviously, you know, when you can cut a tree open and you can count the rings, but how do they determine the age when the tree is still standing and alive? You know, that's a really good idea. They, they haven't done core samples on this one. I think it's uh-huh. estimated based on the diameter okay. and the height and everything like that. But it's well over a thousand years, which wow. predates all the, the, the European ex- exploration. And the First Nations, of course, were using this stuff. The, the cedar tree is critical to their culture in terms of like using it for materials sure. to create clothing and all sorts of stuff. Canoes. I mean, this is like this is this is the symbol of the Northwest that predates amazing. all of us. Incredible. Thank you, Felix. Looking forward to that gallery on MyNorthwest.com later in the day. Time for your daily dose of kindness now, brought to you by Robert W. Baird. Wayne Kime is an 86-year-old Vietnam veteran who never talks much about his service. And after three tours of duty, he still hadn't received the medals he earned. Until one chance meeting, all thanks to the determination and kindness of a stranger. Kime tells ABC affiliate KMBC-TV. When you come home from Vietnam... A lot of Americans didn't appreciate that. And that's what makes it nice when somebody says, thank you for your service. It means a lot to me, personally. Kime, who served in the Navy uh, following two subsequent tours with the Army, had long resigned himself to a quiet life. But the course of his story changed unexpectedly when he met D. Clark. I see that you're wearing a hat from Vietnam. I want to thank you for your service. He got teary-eyed because he said no one had ever welcomed him home before. 50-some years, 60-some years. So I got teary-eyed. The exchange was the beginning of a friendship, and when Clark learned about the unclaimed medals, even Kime's wife didn't know what to do. He wouldn't ever talk about when he was in the service. 
And that's when Clark embarked on a mission. She managed to retrieve Kimes military records, filled out the necessary paperwork, and even got assistance from U.S. Senator Jerry Moran. Clark ensured that Kimes service was formally recognized. We got your pins, and these are your medals. And we want to welcome you home again, and thank you for your service. I appreciate that very kindly. I didn't know if she was just pulling my leg or what, so I, I'm going to be honest with you. I really did, I didn't know really what to think. Kime added the medals hold a deep meaning, offering a kind of closure that perhaps only fellow veterans could fully comprehend. That was a nice thing for that woman to do. Now at 747 from the G and Ursula Show, weekdays 9 to noon here on Cairo News Radio. It's G Scott. Hey, G. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, no, no relationship uh, metaphors today. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, things got a little uh, deep there yesterday. <laughs> but I bet you're going to come up one for uh, come up with one for today. <laughs> right. This weekend's right, game, right? right. So uh-huh. the Seahawks back at home. Yeah. They're going to play the scrappy Arizona Cardinals. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about the Cardinals this year. Teach me. Yeah, there is a date this Sunday that is happening in Lumen Field, and I'm a little, I'm a little nervous about it. Uh, the Arizona Cardinals. First of all, this is the it's a division game, right? And this will be the second division game that the Seahawks have played. The first one was the Rams, and we know that that did not go well. That date did not go well. Well, this uh, tender date here that's going to happen at Lumen Field is against the Arizona Cardinals team that's just really not that good. However, they still do good things from time to time. One of those things was beating the Dallas Cowboys earlier in the season. That was uncharacteristic of them, but it goes to show you any given Sunday something can happen. Uh, the Seahawks come home after a brutal loss in Cincinnati. They come home with an offense that didn't really play that well last week on the road. They come home with a... Uh, Arizona Cardinals team that does not have their starting quarterback, their franchise quarterback in Kyler Murray. This is a game that most experts believe the Seahawks should win. And Colleen, the reason why the nerves are bad, because while this game that they should win, you still understand that it's still a division game and Arizona is coming in here and they're going to be fighting for their lives. Um, I'm going to take Ted Beaner for what he said his final score was going to be. I just I, I can want I want to get to it right now. I want to just call it 30 to 24. And I want to tell you, it is going to be close. Wow, thirty to twenty four. Well, you still have the Hawks winning, though, right? I still, yeah, I still have yeah. the Hawks winning, but it's going to be a close game, and and this is one of those games. Right now, the Seahawks are three and two, and this is a game right here where after this game, look, it does not get any easier. It, you know what I mean? You got the Cleveland Browns, who are a really good team. They're coming into town, and over the next month or so, you got the Forty ers coming in on Thanksgiving. You got the uh, Eagles coming in here the first week in uh, December. It is just going to be a tough time. And if the Seahawks plan to be a playoff team and or a Super Bowl contender, games like this Sunday in Lumen Field are games that they have they have to win. They and have I heard, to win. 
I heard Pete Carroll talking about how Gino was taking ownership over the loss. And even though he was facing some challenges like injuries on the offensive line, mm-hmm. how are we health wise on the team for this game? About as good as everybody else in the NFL, Colleen, right? Like everybody is struggling with some type of health. Again, uh, the Arizona Cardinals come in without their franchise quarterback. They come in without Buda Baker. Shout out to Buda Baker, who is homegrown here in this area. Yeah. That is their uh, uh Pro Bowl, all pro safety that is out there. They don't have it. But as far as the injuries, uh, Abe Lucas, the right tackle, is still not going to play. So they are still missing him. And the right tackle uh, that replaced him, uh, Kirhan, from last week, he hurt. Looked like he hurt his ankle early on to start that game. So that was kind of a bit of a struggle, too. So as far as uh, everything else, it looks like the practice list. Who practiced this week? Well, DK was limited because he got the ribs thing going on. And Mm -hmm. uh, Tyler Lockett got the hamstring thing going on. Mm -hmm. So, Colleen, you know what? Football is a rough. It's a rough sport, girl. Yeah, I'll say I'm not used to injuries this this many injuries this early in the season, though. I guess. Yeah. Well, gee, when when I look at a a division game like this, I oftentimes try to boil it down to units of the team and how those units match up with the other team's units. Is there if you had to boil it down to one unit on the Seahawks has to perform really really well in order for us to win the game? What what would you say that is? I think last week, obviously the defense I think played really well, and I mean you could say if you were to boil it down, it was red zone efficiency on the offense was brutal, and that I think led to uh, their their struggles and that loss. Uh, what would you say this week going into this game? That's, first of all, uh, uh, DB David Burbank, that's a great question, and that unit is going to be specifically the defensive line. That group right there. And the reason why I picked that group is because that group plus the 12s in the stadium, right, could possibly equal a lot of confusion for the offense. And I want to I want to just say this, like. It's really important. Like, it's really important when the 12s and Lumen Field are really losing their minds and going crazy on third down and it's loud out there. It really does, Colleen, cause confusion for the offense, for them to get things on rhythm and everything. And somebody's like, hey, yo, I can't hear. Run that again. Oh, so, sorry, timeout. And all the, when this starts getting chaotic. So, the defensive line, which I believe has actually played above expectation this season, Jaron Reed, who is back with the Seattle Seahawks this year, has been playing MVP football. He has been fantastic. It's going to be the D-line. That's going to be the reason for the 30-24 to 24 win by the Seahawks. And I think to, to factor into that as well, one really, really positive thing going into this, the Arizona Cardinals, new head coach, never played in Lumen Field before. And backup quarterback Josh Dobbs, who has also never played in Lumen Field, that could be that could be big. There I'll tell you is. what, though, DK needs to behave himself on Sunday. Behave to himself. See you, Colleen. Bye, G. At 847, it's Mickey time. The world is getting older in Seattle. In fact, older adults, that is people at the over the age of 65, make up about 12 percent of the population, around 88,000. 442 people out of over 737,000 residents. That's up from 11% in 2010. And so, Mickey, you've been looking into, you know, what 
is Seattle if Seattle is made up of an older population? And is there a way to make it age friendly? Well, yeah, Colleen, Seattle apparently is an age friendly city. And there is a citywide initiative which is trying to make the city more uh, friendly to people of all ages, you know, and Seattle's answer is for this global age friendly movement, which I absolutely love as a woman who is, uh, I, I always give myself, I always give the wrong age. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 48. No, I'm not. I'm 51. So I'm <laughs> nine years away from 60. And it just makes me happy that, you know, this city is becoming more diverse and is, you know, becoming more friendly to its older population, especially mm-hmm. Capitol Hill. Oh, well, what makes a city age friendly? Well, according to um, AARP, Seattle is the most senior friendly city that other cities in the country mm-hmm. uh, than other cities in the country, especially when it comes to housing, transportation, environment, health. We're talking about engagement, opportunity and neighborhood amenities. Like recently, I went to a drag queen bingo at a senior center in West Seattle. It was so much fun. It was actually a fundraiser and all the funds raised went back to that senior center, went back to the community, which was great. And it was wall-to-wall people there to have fun and raise money. Uh, I live in the South Seattle area. And just the other day, when I when I drive home go through Chinatown's International District, I'm always seeing younger people helping their elders walk mm. across the busy street Aww, with their nice. carts. And so I just think that, you know, props to Seattle for being such a senior-friendly city. That is interesting. And mm-hmm. and activities, too, I imagine within I, I don't consider Seattle a, a, a transportation hub. I think we have a lot of challenges mm-hmm. and I know the buses, they've been cutting down on bus routes, mm-hmm. too. So I imagine that is difficult for an older population. But if you can have parks and activities within these smaller neighborhoods, that makes it easy to continue to socialize, because what older populations also face is loneliness. It's an epidemic right. in our country, especially for the LGBTQ community who mm-hmm. are older. That's something that always concerns me as I grow older. And, you know, my wife and I have been together for 20 years. I imagine we're going to be together for 20 more. But what's going to happen when, you know, if she passes away or I pass away, where will I live or there'll be a community for me? Um, this um, this organization, Gen Pride, the executive director, Judy Kinney, says when LGBTQ people are older, they're more than likely to go back into the closet. Mm. I can tell you that as an out lesbian in this city, I, I do not want to grow old and have to go back into the closet. <laughs> So in Seattle, of all places, though, I feel yeah. like that's not happening. Well, here. no, well, it does happen, unfortunately. But the, the you know, like Capitol Hill has a home for queer older adults, and they're helping uh, prioritize the isolation. Um, there is, um, I, I believe, it's right by Whole Foods. When I was living in Capitol Hill, I used to pass it all the day. They were building this senior center specifically for the LGBTQ community. What What's great is that anyone could live there, but especially if you were a part of the community, you'd. Feel Fit in. Hmm. I like to hear that. Yeah, me too. Again, like Mm -hmm. I was just listening to, I talk about podcasts a lot, but I do. I, I, you know, in addition to radio, listen to a lot of podcasts and um, just listened to one with the U.S. Surgeon General, um, Vivek Murthy, about loneliness and that, Mm -hmm. you know, remember when the U.S. Surgeon General issued a a health warning about the epidemic of loneliness in this country that was always there, but really exacerbated after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I worry about 
about that because it's always faced the older population, unfortunately, in, in lots of cultures. You mentioned the Chinatown International District where you see people helping their elders. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the Asian culture, part of other cultures to respect and help your elders. But unfortunately, in, in so many uh, you know white predominant cultures, they're kind of left by the wayside. And that makes me happy to hear that Seattle is trying to remedy that. Absolutely. Becoming an age-friendly city. Absolutely. Now, Katrina, you said you have you have parents and, and you can't imagine them being older. I can't. I really, really can't. But I mean, of course, the day will come. But it's wonderful to know there is a city like Seattle that's welcoming. And Ted Beener... What about you? You are, are I, I, I mean, you, you are a very, you are a distinguished man is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> you can chime in on this as well. Do you feel like Seattle is, uh, is more accepting of seniors and making it a little more easier? As a senior, yes, mm-hmm. I would say that is the case. And that's true throughout much of the Puget Sound area, not just Seattle alone. Well, that makes me happy. Honestly, and going back to sort of the, the LGBTQ community and what, what it means to live in in Capitol Hill, I think the prices in Capitol Hill obviously mm-hmm. is one of the most expensive areas of Seattle, and I think it's so important for people on a fixed income that still want to be a part of that thriving community, that accepting community, uh, that this thing Pride Place is is now uh, you know getting funding and uh, is allowing people to live there. I think that's hugely important, uh, especially for that community. And not only in Capitol Hill, but there's other areas of the city that has subsidized apartments, but we can always do better as a city, right? I mean, we need, we need more of them because not every senior citizen is is of the boomer generation that has the money to be able to retire and buy up all of the homes that we're seeing That's that for go sure. for sale, you know? Yeah, no, that's for sure. And if you want to read that full report, it's in the Seattle Times. Mickey, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.